2: Two bits of good news to start out the show this week. Good news. You remember good news, right? First, yesterday, the Supreme Court struck down a Louisiana law that would have regulated abortion clinics out of existence in that state. And if the law had been upheld, similar laws would have been passed in other red states. It was a 5-4 decision with conservative chief justice John Roberts joining the four liberals in the majority But make no mistake, a woman's right to choose, a woman's right to control her body, to decide when, if, and whether she wants to become a parent, still hangs by a thread. There are more abortion cases making their way toward the court. Because there are always abortion cases making their way toward the court, because this is America, and Canada got the French, and Australia got the convicts, and we got the Puritans, and the short end of that stick, and consequently, the culture wars here are never going to end. By which I mean to say, don't get complacent. DGC. Nothing about the usually reliably anti-choice chief justice's decision yesterday in which he cited a legal technicality, not an epiphany. Nothing about his decision yesterday prevents him from voting with the conservatives to ban abortion in some other case, which is why even with three good recent decisions from the court on gay and trans employment protections, on the Dreamers program, and now on abortion, we can't get complacent. DGC. We have to show up and we have to vote in November and we have to vote for Joe Biden, who is way ahead in the polls right now, but now ain't November. And even if he's 10 points up in November, we still got to vote or he won't win. And the Republicans, yeah, sensing they're going to lose this election, they're going to throw up as many barriers to voting as they can. So register now, order your absentee ballot now. And if you have to go to the polls on Election Day in November, And you live in a red state or a swing state, and some of those red states are looking pretty swingy right now. Hey there, Texas. If you live in one of those states, be sure to bring a bottle of water and something to eat because you're probably going to be in that line for a long time. Still, good news. And with all the bad news coming at us lately, including the news that the European Union is going to ban Americans from entering the EU thanks to our lethally incompetent response to the coronavirus pandemic, With so much bad news coming at us lately, we have to take the good news where we can get it. Oh, and I know European vacations aren't high on anybody's priority list right now, but for those of us with loved ones overseas, it's not the beaches or the ruins we miss. Okay, one more item of good news to start the show. Two black gay men, New York City Councilman Richie Torres and progressive lawyer Mondaire Jones, they won their primary races for U.S. house seats in New York last week. Overwhelmingly, both are favorites to win in the general election in the fall, and they will become the first black gay members of Congress. Even sweeter, Richie Torres, who represents the Bronx and the New York City Council, he beat notorious homophobe Ruben Diaz, senior former state senator, current member of the New York City Council, as compared homosexuality to bestiality and accused gay people of running a nefarious conspiracy to control new york city diaz had greater name recognition and outpolled torres early in the race but torres handed diaz his ass no homo phobes will be wrapping new york city in congress next year congrats to both torres and jones for taking names kicking ass and making history All right, coming up on today's show, tons of your cues, lots of my A's. On the micro and magnum editions of the Savage Lovecast, Brandon Woodard joins us. He's a state rep in Kansas, in the Kansas House. He joins us to talk all things Kansas. And on the magnum, superstar public health official, Dr. Dimitri Daskalakis joins us. He is the man behind New York City Health's response to the pandemic, all of their advice about how to navigate sex and having sex during this pandemic. He joins us to discuss everything New York City Health has been doing. I am very excited that I got to talk to him for today's show. He's on the Magnum. Again, the Magnum. You subscribe at SavageLoveCast.com. Twice as much show, more guests, no ads. SavageLoveCast.com. We appreciate all of our Magnum subscribers so much. All that coming up on today's show.
3: Hey, Dan. I have a quarantine sex story for you. I decided to spend quarantine with my parents. They live in a rural small town and they're very conservative Christians. And when I got there, I matched with a guy on Tinder who was doing the exact same thing. After 14 days of knowing that we hadn't seen anyone else, we decided to meet up and we decided it was a really good fit for a regular exclusive quarantine hookup scenario. We had nowhere to go, given that we're boasting with our parents, even though we're in our mid thirties. So we started hooking up in the back of my SUV on the regular. Uh, We would meet up by the lake, have a beer, hop in the back of my car, do our thing and go our separate ways. And it was fantastic. And we felt like teenagers. I found myself at one point with a giant hickey on my neck that I had to hide from my conservative parents as I snuck around their house in my mid thirties. And it was just so fun to feel like a teenager again. Fun bonus. We figured out that those handles that are in your car are great for getting leverage when you're riding someone on top in a confined space.
2: A giant hickey? Yeah, you are doing it like teenagers more than just doing it in the car. Hickeys or something? You outgrow or you move those bruises elsewhere. More interesting places on the body than the neck. Thank you for calling and sharing your quarantine sex story. We welcome people to call in and share their quarantine sex stories, how you're making it work, how you're passing this time. Also, if you just have a sexual success story, we're really enjoying beginning the shows now with Something positive, somebody just sharing something before we get to the conflict drama and the tas that constitute the rest of the show. So please keep them coming.
4: Hey, Dan. I'm hoping that you can help me with this conundrum. So I'm on a road trip with my very, very pretty friend who I've had crush on for a very long time. We uh, have been talking about um, living together. We're very compatible in that way. We both have also talked about not sleeping together. (laughs) I've never like talked that much about not sleeping with someone before and then slept with them. So we did that on this road trip and it was kind of a weird hookup. He was super reluctant um, and that felt kind of icky. Like it was like one of those like horny mornings where you wake up and you're like half asleep and you are just like in sex already. But like he wasn't necessarily kissing me back and I told him I felt icky about that um it happened a couple of times and he was like well then maybe we just shouldn't hook up anymore which bummed me out because you know I was hopeful (laughs) because I've had a crush on this guy for a very very long time basically since I met him so we're at camping at my friend's place and I wake up this morning and he's not in the tent he's sleeping with my friend and I just felt this like Super icky wave of jealousy, like very pukey. And yeah, I just wanted to ask you how to get over this jealousy and how to stop like holding out hope for us to get together. Like I don't even really want to date him. I just want to like be sucked by him in this like passionate and beautiful way that I know he's capable of that I feel like I didn't really get to see, which kind of makes me feel like I got unscrewed (laughs) in a way
2: she was super reluctant i fucked her anyway she wasn't kissing me back she didn't seem terribly enthusiastic i fucked her anyway if we reversed the genders on this call everyone's heads would now be exploding and my head is exploding a little bit, recognizing that, you know, if the genders were reversed, there's an implicit threat of male violence, if the woman is sometimes, you know, deferring to the man, not wanting to say no directly, afraid that the man would escalate to physical violence if she said no. And some women will have sex that they don't want to have because they fear worse. This dude is having sex with you at your insistence that he does not want to have And the fact that you have a crush on him and you would like to have sex with him and you would like him to make love to you passionately in a way that you know he's capable of even though that is not how he makes love to you because it's not what he's interested in from you. He's not interested in you sexually or romantically is not okay. This is incredibly fucked up. There isn't the implicit threat of male violence. There is though a consent violation here. Refusal on your part to read his body language, read his reluctance, and withdraw. I don't mean take his dick out of you. I mean stop expecting him to have sex with you. Withdraw from any sort of sexual expectations. The dude does not want to fuck you. The dude is not attracted to you. I don't know why he's fucking you anyway. I don't know why he's hanging out with you when you're putting him under this pressure to be sexual with you. And rather than just saying no, maybe he's one of those people who has a hard time saying no to people. I'm actually one of those people who has a hard time saying no to people sometimes. Maybe he's just giving you a little bit and hoping you get off his back and his dick. But it's never going to be satisfying sex and you're always going to feel bad about it because you should feel bad about it. Because what you're doing is Kind of bad, whether your intents are bad, whether you have the self awareness to realize what you're doing is bad, it's bad. And the last thing you should do is live with this guy who's going to make you unhappy. He's going to date and fuck other women that he's excited about dating and fucking. He's not excited about dating and fucking you. He has made that clear. Stop wasting your time and your pussy on him and resolve in the future that when you're with someone who seems super reluctant, that is not enthusiastic consent when you're with somebody who doesn't really want to kiss you back and you're fucking them anyway that is not enthusiastic consent that is not sex that you should be having certainly not sex that they want to be having and in the moment maybe you'll go for it because you're horny and it's the morning or whatever your rationalizations were but after the fact you're gonna feel bad about it and you should and they're gonna feel bad about it they felt bad about it when it started don't fuck this guy don't live with this guy Process your feelings of jealousy on your own. We we don't get everything or everyone we want. And this guy, you can want him, but he doesn't want you back. Go find a guy who wants you, who fucks you without reluctance, and who kisses you back. And stop sex-pesting this guy.
5: Hi, Dan. I'm a 31-year-old queer pansexual from the East Coast. Um, I am married uh, also to a queer pansexual man. We have been married for almost three years. Um, I am a young stepmom. His first marriage, he had three kids. So I am a young stepmom. I'm 31 and my oldest stepchild is 20. They're really cool kids. Um, My question to you is about step-parent porn, stepson, stepdaughter, step-sibling porn. I initially was like, this is just so awkward and uncomfortable, and I get transgressive thoughts and how they can be erotic, but as a step-parent now, I'm like, okay, no, hands down, big, fat, all capitals, nope, never going to watch that. Well, yesterday, I was masturbating, as I find myself doing often during the pandemic, um, all my husband's at work, and... I looked at a porn that was titled something like Lesbian DP Three-Way. But when I started watching it, it turned out to be a step family of people fucking. And I was actually, like, not turned off by it. So my question to you is, one, does that mean that there are... Like, I know myself and know that there are no um, latent feelings towards my stepchildren. I find that repulsive. But what is it with this kink about step families fucking? Why is it the most popular form of pornography in the country? I have a few friends who do porn and they are just doing step porn, like step family porn. Like, what is it about that? Is that what is going on? If you could provide some insight into that, I just find that personally repulsive. Maybe not so repulsive anymore, actually, because I wasn't like I turned it off or anything. I quite enjoyed the actual sex, but if you could shed some light, that would be great.
2: This porn I stumbled over, I was not turned off by it. Kind of odd way of saying the porn you stumbled over turned your crank, and it turned your crank because it's transgressive and it's taboo. And in a way, that oh, that step-parent, step-child genre of porn allows for transgression and taboo to really soak into what is otherwise of usually vanilla, missionary, heterosexual, standard off-the-shelf sexual activities encounter. But adding that veneer of these are step-parents and step-children, perhaps very close in age. Sometimes it's the much younger stepmother and the step-son or stepdaughter who's much closer to her age than her husband, their biological father. It just takes all of this basically normal heterosexual sexual activity and makes it really fucking freaky and awful. And there's something about that freaky awfulness that gets people's blood pumping in a way that is at once easy to understand the porn turns you on because it's transgressive in a way that's at once easy to understand the porn turns you on because it's transgressive and it turns you crank and hard to understand why this, because in reality as most people who enjoy Incest porn will tell you, almost all of them will tell you, they don't fantasize about their actual relatives. That thinking about their actual siblings or step-parents or step-children or actual children does nothing for them. But something about this porn really fucking works. And maybe it's the fetishization of family relationships and the nuclear family. I don't know. I don't know. I can't answer your question. I don't know why this porn turns you on. I think that's a question you might want to ask yourself. The get-out-of-jail-free-card answer or get-out-of-jail-quickly answer is it's just so fucked up. It is so transgressive. But unlike the super transgressive fucked-up porn out there, unlike Two Girls, One Cup or insanely kinky porn or transgressive, you know, in the bodily fluids or excretion manner, this is extremely fucked-up, basically, vanilla hetero porn. And I think that's what has made it so popular because it takes – Off-the-shelf standard, not a problem, not transgressive sex. And just with that added complication of a step-parent-step-child relationship, it makes it super fucked up. And I just want to highlight one thing about your call that I think is really interesting. This is not who you are. You would never fuck stepchild. There is a lot of our erotic imaginations, our erotic in our lives, our fantasies, which are sometimes expressed through porn consumption only, that is about violating our sense of self and who we are. This is not who I am. The cliche example is the very powerful businessman who goes to the dominatrix and crawls and begs and has his ass whipped. That's not who he is most of the time. He's acting that fantasy out. It's not who he is. It's a violation of the self that he presents to the world, but also in a lot of ways, the self he presents to himself, the story about himself he tells himself. And there's a story about yourself that you tell yourself, which is that you are a good and decent and loving person and a good and decent and loving spouse and a good and decent and loving step-parent. And this is not who you are. And instead of that being why this doesn't turn you on or shouldn't turn you on, that is why it does.
6: Hi, Dan. 39-year-old gay male here not so much a sex question, but more of a situation we're in and professional question, I guess I would say. I work for a company that is going through some pretty big reorganization efforts. And one of the things that I have to contemplate is whether I would be willing to move to Kansas to keep my job. I've been working for my company for over 15 years. My partner Uh, of 18 years, and I have both worked for this company. He's been there for 10 years. He found out that his position is actually safe, and he is able to work remote, so he could move with me to Kansas, but my dilemma is this. Uh, I have no friends, no family back east. We're very close to his family, who's uh, right in our same area. We see them typically weekly, and... Usually, the area that I live in has a decent amount of opportunity. Financial security, though, is very important to me. And being in this current COVID-19 world that we're in, the idea of being unemployed with millions of other Americans is really a scary thought. And the idea of moving to Kansas is an equally scary thought. So I don't know what to do. Any advice on how you might tackle this situation you know i thought i could stay there for a couple of years and then come back when the economy rebounds but it's kansas
2: joining me by phone to help tackle this question brandon woodard is a democratic member of the kansas house of representatives an openly gay man he was elected to the kansas house in 2018 one of two members of the lgbt community who were elected that year both of them first brandon thank you for jumping on the phone or representative woodard thank you for jumping on the phone (laughs)
7: Brandon is just fine. Thanks for having me.
2: So a quick point of order for people who are confused, like I am confused by this constantly. You live in and represent Kansas City, Kansas, which is not to be confused with Kansas City, Missouri, which is right next door.
7: Right. So I'm in uh, actually Lenexa, which is one of the suburbs of the Kansas City area.
2: That's very confusing. Why? If you're going to be twin cities like Minneapolis and St. Paul, take different names. If it was Minneapolis and Minneapolis, but they were different cities, everyone would get a be annoyed by that, even if they were in the same state. What gives? Why can't you rename one of these?
7: Uh, you know, we'll work on it for sure. I think <laughs> we're going to have Kansas City in the name. We we get it in the Kansas side then.
2: Okay. Well, we it's just that, you know, us coastal elites want the flyover states to be less confusing to us than they already are. All right. Let, let's get to this caller's question. He's a 39-year-old gay man. His company is moving some jobs, including his, to Kansas City. So score one for the Kansas economic development department that lured his company away and his husband can come with him is not a problem but he's worried about Kansas he's worried about living in Kansas as a gay man and an elected official in Kansas what does he need to know what might make him feel better about moving to Kansas for a few years
7: well in addition to being an inclusive state we are all, all also just Midwest nice so while we have seen a number of anti LGBT bills passed in recent years in 2018, we elected two openly LGBT members to the legislature. We sent an openly LGBT congressperson to the U.S. House. And we have a Democratic governor who's our 12th one and supports pro-LGBT
2: policies. Your 12th Democratic governor. Yes. This is the after—you know, the only governor of Kansas that I can recall is Sam Brownback, who was a disaster, who, you know, instituted the full Republican plan slash ideology dogma about— Taxes and slashing, public funding and s- schools and teachers and, and hospitals and health clinics and basically drove the state into such a deep ditch that the voters turned around and elected a Democratic governor. I thought she was your first Democratic governor because Kansas has such a reputation as a blood red state.
7: Right. Well, I think we we learned the error of our ways. And in fact, the, this governor's first action, first day on the job was to reinstate LGBT worker protections for state employees.
2: So that's a good sign.
7: We're headed in the right direction. We just got to make sure that we continue down that path. But Kansas is a great place.
2: Is it a great? OK, so, so beyond the politics of it, that, you know, there are openly gay elected officials in Kansas, sent one to the House of Representatives in D.C. You have a Democratic governor, which is a reaction to the shitty Republican governor. You all just fucking coughed up like a hairball. What else is there about Kansas that recommends it as a place to live and work? And, and do you think this caller could endure it for just a few years?
7: I think they could absolutely endure it. I, I, it A lot depends on what part of the state they're in. The Kansas City area of Kansas does make up one-fourth of the state's population. Uh, so I've been excited to see business grow here in this part of the state, but also central and, and down in, in the Wichita area as well. So it would depend, I think, where they're going. Um, but generally, people are welcoming here. They're nice. They're excited to get to know folks. Um, there's a lot of stuff to do, whether that's recreational outside, a uh, ton of great parks here. We've got a lot of great land, so mm-hmm. there's a lot of stuff to do. And also the proximity to Kansas City, Missouri, there's a lot of great things to do as well. So um, not in addition to a lot of fun stuff to do here on the ground, uh, when COVID's over, you also are connected to an airport that you can get anywhere in the country in three hours or less. So there's a lot of great stuff to do here, but also very connected to the rest of the
2: country as well. You're really centrally located, be in New York in three hours. And when I want to go to New York, that's a seven or eight hour flight and a nightmare. Three hours sounds like a nice, shorter, more endurable flight to New York. That's time to get exposed exactly. to COVID. So uh, what's the gay scene like, or can you not talk about that as an elected Kansas official?
7: <laughs> there are, you know, statistics say one in 10 people. So in a population of <laughs> the metro area in Kansas City of 2 million people, you've got a lot of homos, right? We've got a great LGBT uh, network here. Uh, We've got chambers of commerce across the state that are focused on LGBT causes um, and just a lot of great opportunities to get to know one another, uh, whether it is politically um, or just going out to bars and getting a drink with your friends.
2: I've been out to some of the gay bars in Kansas City, Missouri and Kansas City, Kansas on a couple of my speaking tour visits, and they seemed populated with fun and exciting looking guys, so you know assuming this west coast gay married male couple is in an open relationship like most west coast married gay male couples are they're still going to get laid
7: they uh will have a a great group of midwest folks to meet for sure
2: <laughs> all right you and i have met before
7: i didn't yeah. realize that
2: when we when we reached out to each other on twitter we've met before
7: yeah so when i was involved as a student leader at the university of kansas we had um, Gay Pro, which we supported every year, uh, which was basically Pride Month on campus. And we had everything from one year, which started out as just a, a brown bag lunch drag show, uh, to extending it to a full month while I was there. We had our first It Gets Better month, and we were very excited to have you on campus for a talk and uh, book signing.
2: So campus activism, LGBT campus activism, was your where you cut your teeth in, in organizing yeah. and in politics.
7: Indeed. Uh, Being the first openly LGBT student body leader, student body vice president, which we never really even talked about in the campaign. And it didn't come up a whole lot in my campaign for state representative, but Mm -hmm. uh, I kind of got to check out the state house and learn how to get things moving through the process through being involved on campus. And so I was really excited to have that opportunity.
2: When I talk to people about the country, one of the things I, I often say is there's no such thing as a a blue state. There's only red states, but some of them have big blue dots in them. Some of them have big blue cities like Seattle. Washington, when you look geographically, you look at those voting patterns that the president prefers because it makes him look like a winner. Uh, It's mostly a sea of red with some blue sprinkled around. There are blue dots in Kansas,
7: right? There are. Or there's dots like the seat I represent, which voted for Mitt Romney and then turned around and voted for Hillary Clinton a couple years later. So there are blue dots all over for sure, but there's a lot of red in Kansas. So if you look at 105 counties, I think maybe 10 of them went blue last time, but we still elected the governor through that cuz population is concentrated in certain parts of the state.
2: So maybe the caller instead of Here in Kansas is a red state and fearing all of Kansas needs to look at a map of Kansas that breaks the vote down by precinct or county and then make sure that wherever his company is sending him, wherever he and his husband choose to live during their time in Kansas, which who knows, maybe it'll be a few years, maybe they'll fall in love with it and stay forever, that they go to a place that's one of the blue dots in that red state.
7: Absolutely. And they should feel free to reach out. I will, with a mask on from social distance, welcome them to Kansas with open arms.
2: Thank you so much. Brandon Woodard, Democratic member of the Kansas House of Representatives, currently campaigning for re-election, and good luck to you. We wish you the best. Thank
7: you. Thanks so much.
0: Hi, Dan, and the tech savvy Abrisk Youth. I'm a 30-something bisexual female living in the Pacific Northwest. I have a two-part question. The first one is about me and my husband. He has a fetish, I would call it, with breast milk. He often talks about sucking my nips or sucking my breast milk. I've never been pregnant and we don't have any children. So he doesn't really understand. I don't think what having breast milk and lactating is all about. It's kind of a messy endeavor and it is in fact milk. But he always says like, I can't wait to suckle your nips. And I find it kind of weird and it's not at all a turn on for me. I don't really say anything, but one time he directly said something about it, about sucking my breast milk. And I said, you know, you can't actually do that. That's not how it works. And he said, really? I can't suck them just once? I felt really bad. Like this was a big disappointment for him. So I said, sure, you can do it just once to see what it's like. But I'm just wondering, is this a thing? Is this something that's like deep seated in his weird reptile brain where he... I don't know, started to fetishize and sexualize this. I feel like there's such a stigma against sexualizing women's breasts that are really intended for the purpose of feeding their children, but at the same time, I don't want to shame him for obviously this desire that he shared with me and has really been vulnerable about. Just wondering about your thoughts on it.
2: I get the impression from the first two thirds of your call that your husband really doesn't understand how breasts work. But then, at the end, it sounds like you don't understand how breasts work either. First of all, breasts are sexualized. And while it's stigmatized and should be stigmatized to make women feel uncomfortable about their breasts or stare at women's breasts, people are attracted to these secondary sex characteristics like, you know, muscles on a dude, breasts on a woman. And there are a lot of evolutionary biologists who theorize that uh, breasts became larger and more prominent as a – you know, selected for mating advantage over time as we began to walk upright. And instead of showing each other our big round asses, we started showing each other our breasts and women who had, you know, prominent breasts that looked a little bit like asses were preferred partners and over tens of thousands of years or millions of years of humanoid evolution, boobs and sexualized boobs. You don't want people panting after your breasts in public if you are a breast haver and that people should feel bad about but yeah they are sexualized they're thoroughly and completely sexualized and they were thoroughly and completely sexualized as homo sapiens evolved and long before the first cities were founded human culture took root or the first religion was invented so yeah you just need to get over that and allowing your husband to suckle your breasts just once isn't going to bring your milk in So he's not going to get to taste human breast milk, as I hope you know, if he's allowed to suckle your tits, allowed to suck on your tits or play with your tits, which I would think your husband would – already have been able to do at some point. Breast milk comes in after pregnancy, after birth. There is a hormonal response that like kicks all that breast factory shit in the boobs into gear. There is not breast milk leaking out of breasts. The fatty tissues and breasts are there to help produce the breast milk. They aren't breast milk waiting to be sucked out of the tits, just quickly. If you have a partner who talks about a part of your body in a way that makes you uncomfortable or that just isn't hot, like I can't wait to suckle your nips and I want to suck on your breast milk, you can just be direct with them and say, that's not sexy to me. The way you're talking about that part of my body doesn't turn me on. That's not hot, dirty talk to me. That just kind of skeeves me out. So if you want to talk about my boobs and appreciate my boobs, find some other words. (laughs) Keep using your words. Just use different ones. I think of a male friend, a gay male friend the other day who wrote me because he was freaked out because some guy was fucking him and started calling his ass a cunt. And in the moment, it wasn't turning him on. But in the moment, he didn't want to ruin things for the guy who was ruining things for him by saying anything. And after the fact, he was too shy to say anything and he still wanted to hook up with the guy. Well, he needs to obviously say something if the guy's going to start calling his butthole a cunt while he's getting fucked. My friend listens. I'm giving him this advice for free. Bonus gratis again. And it's the same advice for you. Say to your husband, I love that you love me. I love that you're sexually attracted to me. It's fine that you're into my breasts. Breasts are things that, a secondary sex characteristic that most men are into, straight men particularly. But you can't keep using these phrases, these sentences, I want to suckle your nips. That turns me off. That makes me not want you to get anywhere near my tits. And then maybe you can suggest some ways that he could talk about your tits that would turn you on, that would make you feel appreciated and attractive and a little bit less like a dairy. And jumping back for a second, I assume you and your husband play with your tits dur- during sex that he touches your tits. It's an erogenous zone. Most people enjoy having their tits played with during sex and not just women, not just females, also males. Men like to have their nipples and tits played with and touched during sex. It can be intensely erotic. It is for many people what gets them there. It is the difference between sort of coasting along, fucking, fucking, fucking and climaxing is a little bit of attention to the tits men and women during sex. So I hope you're already getting that kind of attention and allowing your husband to enjoy your breasts. Anyway, good luck.
8: Hi, Dan. longtime listener, first-time caller here. Uh, while we're on the topic of systemic injustices, there's a question that's been on my mind for some time, which is, is it sexist for me to offer to pay for women? Um, I think I've done this pretty consistently. Whenever I'm out, with just one other person, as long as that person identifies as a woman and is in the same age range as me. Um, usually, it's been in the context of dating and relationships, but uh, upon reflection, it's also happened with platonic female friends, regardless of sexual orientation. I guess, you know, if I offer to pay for male friends, which happens far less consistently, it's usually in the context of some sort of verbal arrangement that expects them to pay equally, like, you know, let me get the first round. Um, When it comes to systemic sexism, I could, in theory, see arguments both that this is part of the problem and also that it's part of the solution. I'm also not one of those assholes that says you can't have it both ways when it comes to embracing both feminism and gender-specific dating traditions at the same time. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on this.
2: The person who asks the other person out on the date pays. With friends, you take turns. If you're going to pick up the check this time, they pick up the check next time. Or you put your credit cards down on the table together and you split it. If you have a lot more money than someone, if you are employed and a friend of yours is unemployed, particularly at this moment, it can be a kind gesture to treat them, to... Pick up the check without an expectation that next time they're obligated to pick up the check. Next time you can split it or next time you'll pick it up again because you enjoy their company and they're struggling. And if you're not struggling at this moment, you can be kind and decent and take them out. It's easy to say the person who asked the person out on the date pays from Gayland because in Gayland the dude asks the dude out. And sometimes you're the dude who asked the dude out and sometimes you're the dude who got asked out. And it can somehow shake out to feel a little bit more fair. In straight land, it is customary, it is the default that the man asks the woman out. So men are going to wind up paying for more dates and meals and goings out than than women are going to. And I think that's, in a way, unavoidable. You know, it's a little bit like, brings to mind the father walking the daughter down the aisle and presenting the daughter to the fiancé, soon-to-be husband, waiting for her at the altar. It is a property transaction. It is symbolically, it harkens back to a time when daughters were property properties of the fathers and wives were property property of the husband. And this was one man gifting his property, this female to another man. And that survives in a lot of people's wedding ceremonies. And that ritual with all of its sort of evil backstory survives in a lot of people's wedding ceremonies. People go through the motions of that. There's other meanings that have been attached to it over time about love and compassion and two families coming together and whatever else. And often you see the mother and father walk the daughter down the aisle now. And although the the roots of it are it's rooted in some very deep and awful shit, the expression of it now is a little less tainted by that deep and awful shit. I think the same can be said of sort of gender imbalance and who asks who out for a date and who pays. It is rooted in some gendered shit that a lot of people have moved past, but it is a formality an expectation. Women for the most part, don't ask men out. If men wait around for women to ask them out, they're not going to get asked out, which gives women fewer opportunities to be the person who asked the person out and therefore is the person who will pay. And so, yeah, suck it up. Put that credit card on the table, pay for your dates. We've been talking a lot on the show about the health recommendations from the New York Department of Health, specifically their recommendations for remaining sexually safe during this pandemic. For those of us who are old enough to remember the vague and opaque and often deeply unhelpful recommendations we got from health departments at the start of the AIDS epidemic, or for younger people, what passes for health recommendations in most sex ed programs, including quote-unquote good ones, the recommendations from New York City Health have been surprisingly frank and sex-positive. And joining us by phone is the man behind those recommendations, Dr. Dimitri Daskalakis. Did I get your name right? Did I pronounce that correctly? You did. Oh, thank God. perfect. (laughs) But I'm going to call you Dr. Dimitri, okay, just to give myself a break. Deputy Commissioner for Disease Control at the New York City Health Department, also leading the department's COVID-19 response. Thank you for jumping on the phone, Dr. Dimitri. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me Uh, first for listeners who don't know about you. New York magazine described you as an infectious disease expert as Tom of Finland would have imagined one the city's (laughs) tattooed virus expert. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into this line of work.
9: Well, so um, it's, it was a, it was one of my favorite uh, descriptors of my of of I guess me ever, but it was pretty fun. Um, I actually got into doing uh, infectious diseases uh, because of HIV. So um, you know, I, I uh, moved to New York City in 1991, and it was the bad old days of HIV. And I swore, was in college and worked a lot in that space ultimately decided to become an HIV doctor. And the way to do that back then was to be an infectious disease doctor. And so I went through that pathway and then have landed happily at the Department of Health.
2: Well, I'm so thrilled to talk to you because – and I think I speak for almost everyone out there, particularly like 30 years ago, top of the AIDS epidemic. Uh, you would talk to sex educators and the impression you would get is this is not a person who has ever had sex. Right, And that is not the impression no. one gets talking with you or, or reading about you. You are a sex habit.
9: No, I, I I enjoy a very healthy sex life, <laughs> so I'm not scared of talking about sex.
2: Even now during the <laughs> pandemic, you're enjoying a healthy sex
9: life. Even now during the pandemic. I mean, I think, I think you know, the, you, you've referenced the AIDS epidemic. And, you know, I think, you know, I, I, I sort of listened to my infectious disease history and sort of my, my infectious disease sort of like Advocates who've come before me, and you know, uh, when HIV hit, um, there was no one who really understood how to have sex during that epidemic until members of the community, Michael Callan, as an, an example,
2: Michael Callan, how to have sex during an epidemic, uh, during a plague. Um, yeah, he was a huge influence on me. I read his book. I'd met him and thought he was me
9: too. Me, so that's exactly it. So I was, I was, you know, sitting uh, at the Department of Health during the beginning of the COVID pandemic. And was uh, talking with my head of STI, Susan Blank, and my head of HIV, uh, Oni Blacksock, who I supervise. And I said, we need to sort of create something about say, about about you know hooking up and sex uh, in the context of the pandemic. And like the reference document was the Michael Callan document to say like you know how to how to have sex during a, uh, an epidemic, one approach. And so I said, you know, let's do sex in the time of COVID. And so I feel like public health, good public health, learns from its history. And I think that the history of the HIV epidemic, where there was a lot of silence from public health, didn't really help anything and probably propagated disease. And so uh, like flipping the story, um, you know, really taking a cue from the HIV epidemic and creating a document that is like, as I think, almost as frank and and inspired by the fetish community as their document was, mm-hmm. I think is pretty great.
2: So, you know, the attitude that that I recall at the beginning of the HIV epidemic, I came out in 1980 and so kind of right into the wood chipper a, a couple years later. And there's been something about this pandemic that has been for me like reliving 1981 to 1986 in four months and it's mm-hmm. you know, dredged up a lot of painful memories. But one of the things that I remember was the attitude from a lot of public health officials was why can't these people just not have sex? Stop having sex. And a lot of gay men did stop having sex at the beginning of the epidemic, and then we figured it out because people need to have sex. People need to have intimacy. The difference then, and I've talked about this on the show, was that you know, if you chose to be intimate, you know if you're sexual, you were only taking risks for yourself difference of the just awful difference this time is you're not just taking a risk for yourself. You're taking a risk for the people you live with, the people you work with, if you have to go into work, um, the people you come into contact with when you have sex, when you hook up for sex. And it's put me in a terrible position where I feel like I, I am Dr. No, I have to keep telling people, don't hook up with randos. You no, know you can't be poly right now unless you live with your partners. I even told a caller that wearing a gas mask wouldn't make it safe. You... On the other hand, and and what's so inspired me about reading is that your doctor, well, not doctor, yes, but maybe doctor, maybe. And here's how, and right, doctor, maybe, and sometimes right. (laughs) And and you, after I had a caller, and and they said I'm going to wear a mask, or you know, I'm in the fetish community. We'll both like rubber up and wear gas masks. And I said that doesn't make it safe. And then I look at your recommendations, recently revised, and one of the recommendations was make it a little kinky, wear masks. It's not so much the fucking. That puts you at the greatest risk it's the kissing or breathing on each other and if you can cover up your face and this is also just like a flip from aids because it was the fucking that was safe but kissing was it was the fucking unsafe and the kissing was totally safe, totally and this is turning on its head so how did you get there well a couple answers. So first of all, I'm going to say like
9: literally, my joke is that it's like flip STIs on its head because like we're worried for the about the neck up rather than the waist down. It's so a lot different than other sort of sex, possibly uh, uh, sexually transmitted infections of realizing that this isn't really sexually transmitted per se. It's transmitted by air and droplets. And so you know, I'll tell you the story was that um, that early on in the pandemic, I, um, when we released our first round of these guidelines, um, when it was still like stay away from everybody and like only use zoom and only fans and other things to have uh, sort of erotic encounters i had a uh, webinar that had a lot of folks who were sex workers and i had this like fantastic dominatrix on the webinar who said listen like i'm not sure what the problem is i always use masks and i stay six feet away from my clients all the time and i'm like wait a minute this is great and so, like, then it, became, it sort of got into our consciousness about using something around masking during, the, during sex and avoiding face-to-face sex, which then creates an entire universe of, of sexual positions and other sort of conversations um, to sort of put into our guidance. And, I, you know, amazingly, three days before we, we put out the masking guidance, Harvard put out a letter saying that people should, use, should wear masks during sex. And so I think that, you know, the fetish community, just like in the Michael Callan document, really led the way Way in terms of sort of saying that there's ways to have like erotic encounters that maybe are off your beaten path, but could potentially still allow you uh, to have like sexual to have sexual pleasure.
2: Oh, yeah, that, and is, so, you know, that is so. Like the beginning of the HIV AIDS epidemic, one of the lessons was getting fisted was less risky than getting fucked, and getting tied up and jacked off was safer than just having quote unquote boring vanilla gay sex. Having kinky sex where there wasn't a lot of you know ass fucking was suddenly safer. Yep.
9: I mean, like my exact, one of, one of my uh, sort of activist sort of inspiration said that, w- that in that document, because I did my, a little research before we launched things, was that in the original Michael Callan document, one of the conversations was that bootlicking is okay. I was like, well, there you go. Like sort of the lesson from the fetish community is like, you know, wear a mask, make it kinky, do something creative. And then, you know, we have our entire use physical barriers such as walls that allow for genital contact without face to face. Yeah. I mean,
2: so go for it. I got to spike the football there. I literally said the first week that we began to lock down two months ago, however long ago it was. That this could kick off the new golden age of glory holes. But it (laughs) seemed to me intuitively at the start that if it was air and droplets and breathing that we were worried about – approaching a wall, putting your dick through a hole in that wall, and being serviced by somebody on the other side of that wall who gets off on service, like that, was safe so long as the wall was cleaned if different people were using it between uses. Scientifically sound. So the science caught up with me. I, I love it. There you it go. I, exactly. I love it when I'm right. Who doesn't like when they're right? I got to ask you about risk and, and sexual health and sexual health recommendations. It's, yep. it's safe or it's not safe. Wearing masks, meeting up with people that you do not live with that You haven't been sheltering with, meeting up with somebody that you met on Tinder or Grindr or Recon tonight. Uh, that is inherently risky. These are steps. These recommendations at New York City Health, There's are steps you can take to make that inherently risky encounter less risky. But it's not eliminating risk. It's safe or not safe.
9: Correct. So we're in, you know, I think one of the things that we do at the Department of Health, and I think you may have, if you've seen, like, uh, our campaigns around HIV, our campaigns around drugs, one very common theme that we have is harm reduction. And so there are definitely pathways to harm elimination, and that is, you know, abstinence and or only having sex with a partner who is in your household. But the reality is, as you said at the beginning, people will seek intimacy, and so we need to arm them with the right strategies to reduce their risk. I mean, today we actually released new uh, guidance around uh, safer gatherings that really are, are sort of similar to the sort of sex guidance around how to reduce harm if you, if you decide to have in-person like uh, gatherings. Um, And a lot of that also revolves around no shame if people choose to do it because it tends to push things underground. Yeah, so bottom line is like everything that we do at this department, at least for the last several years, has been focusing on harm reduction since we know that harm elimination um, isn't necessarily a strategy. I mean, like, you know, I think you'll, if you have seen what we've done with HIV, you know i feel like one of the biggest drivers that people have is pleasure and right. so if you actually engage people and say you can have a pleasurable experience just have an idea of have a plan have some ideas of what your real risk is like again i always say like hooking up with like 30 people on 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 grinder the next day maybe you don't want to go and kiss granny you may want to just think about like what the strategy is like when do i test what do i do like so it's, it's about really doing things consciously rather than having shame make it be unconscious
2: so one of the traps of people who give health tips and i as a completely unqualified advice monger sometimes are in, i'm in the position of health tips is you're not allowed to tell anybody to do anything that has any risk at all. When it comes to sex, there's something about adding orgasms that makes people deeply uncomfortable with any degree of risk. People ski and slam into trees and die. People jump out of airplanes, That's fine, right? yeah. open, <laughs> they die. People have chicken salad, they get salmonella, they die. Nobody says the only safe chicken salad is the chicken salad you didn't eat. But they say this about sex, that if there's any risk of harm to you or your partner that that's, a, that's not a risk that you can run, it's not a risk you should run. And the health professional's responsibility is to say, don't do that because risk cannot be eliminated. And I've always been in this position of telling people, okay, risk is inherent and risk is something we accept in all other areas of our lives. It's also something that we can legitimately take on in, in, in our sex lives. There's a level of recklessness that I think we can recognize. It's like pornography, that definition from the Supreme Court. You know it when you see it. Recklessness, we often know it when we see our friends engaged in it. Sometimes we can't perceive it when we are we are engaged in it ourselves. But accepting some degree of risk is legitimate. And it's just so refreshing to see a health department embrace that at this moment so emphatically.
9: Thank you. I mean, like a couple things. So, you know, risk again, it's sort of like your pornography analogy is is in the eye of the beholder. So someone's perception of of my sex life as risky, that just may mean a good Saturday night for me, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to sort of meet people where they are. And what I mean by that is like, you know, from my sort of what we've been doing at the health department, my sort of philosophy, how I see my patients actually is that you have to figure out what risk people are, are willing to accept. Like you have people who are scared of heights and you have bungee jumpers. You have to be able to give advice to both the people who are scared of heights and the bungee jumpers. That's what good medicine is and good public health is. So if you're only able to give advice to people scared of heights or you're trying to convince a bungee jumper not to jump, you're not going to do very well.
2: I want uh, – last question, last thing I want to ask you. Um, on behalf of my listeners who've called in and asked me this, there's somebody they want to hook up with. They've been being responsible the last couple of months, unlike you know the governor of Florida. They've been being responsible, doing what they can to flatten the curve. Uh, being safe. But now, you know, they, they haven't had sex for months and people are coming to me. I haven't had sex for months with this person and they want my permission to, to go have sex with that person. And I can give them my permission, but it's not risk-free and the risk isn't yours alone. The risk is something that you're shouldering sometimes on behalf of the other people you live with. What would your advice be to this person who, you know, two months, no sex, three months, no sex. There's somebody they've been talking to. They want to get together practical, the harm reduction strategy for them during that encounter.
9: So I would start exactly how you started which is that the like the, to completely avoid risk rather than to you know reduce it or mitigate it it's you know try to still like steer clear but if you choose to hook up with someone, then a couple of things. A, talk about COVID. So again, like though it's not perfect, people who've had COVID previously diagnosed by a, uh, by a viral detection test or a diagnostic test, that's a nose or spit test, um, their chances of, of, uh, of if they are done with their infection, that's 10 days after their symptoms started and uh, at least 72 hours without a fever, the chance that they can transmit is very low. And then they probably are also less likely to... Uh, get reinfected. So that's one reality. Antibody tests, pretty much useless. Don't use those really to make decisions about your sex life or anything. They're not very good overall. Um, So I would say that you would have to, A, talk about COVID. um, Also navigate what you will and won't do. Like the best thing about like the digital age is that you can like go on Scruff or Grindr or Tinder or whatever and just, you know, really pre-screen the people that you're going to have sex with to see if like if if they're able to have these conversations and tell you something. So I would say that, you know, if you're going to do it, like go in there consciously, think about wearing a mask with sex, think about ways to sort of not have like face-to-face interactions. And then frankly, like if you do this a bunch or have like a lot of activity, think about putting yourself like, uh, you know, getting tested uh, fairly regularly to see if you have uh, uh, COVID-19. Like, especially if you're around people who are potentially higher risk. So that's over 65 years of age or other underlying conditions. So it's really like being conscious about like what you're doing and understanding what level of risk you are willing to accept for yourself and how you can prevent risk for others by using, you know, appropriate personal protective equipment, as well as how you can use like testing as well as distance. So again, like if you're going to hook up, You don't want to go see granny the next week. Like you want to either like see what happens for five or six days, maybe get a test. Ideally, like avoid interacting with people who may be at higher risk for at least like 10 to 14 days. So you can do this. Just realize that you may be, you just have to sort of make plans uh, to protect yourself and others.
2: And one of those plans can be to lick his boots, not his face.
9: There you go. Boots are fine.
2: (laughs) And wear a mask during that encounter. Still, there is risk. There is risk
9: and no face and again there's ways to have sex without it being face to face
2: zoom you know that was the thing that blew my mind at the the very beginning was watching everybody say you know the, the culture that had said anybody who you know gets online swaps sex messages or dirty videos or goes onto a chat room and gets naked and masturbates is running a terrible risk and suddenly that turned on its head that was the terribly unrisky option
9: all of new york city <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah yes. indeed
2: Virus has been found in feces, so one of the recommendations is don't eat ass. But there is sort of inconclusive evidence about semen that mm-hmm. it's been found in these very small studies, very small samples. They don't know if there's enough of it in semen for it to be a, a risk of exposure. What's the current recommendation about smoke? Yeah,
9: yeah. So- Virus can be found in lots of places. Bottom line is coronaviruses are not uh, efficiently transmitted through sexual, like, through, through sexual fluids. So, you know, I would say again, it's all about harm reduction. We believe that, that uh, semen is probably very, very, very low risk. Vaginal secretions, there's been no coronavirus identified. And in terms of rimming, um, you know, I think that, there, that the theoretical risk is there. But uh, in terms of a harm reduction strategy, I would probably say um, rim over kiss. How's that?
2: <laughs> Stick to the lower end of the gastrointestinal <laughs> tract and you'll you And if you've been working hard on the other side of that glory hole blowing someone and they're about to shoot that load... The risk is minimal if you want to go ahead and swallow that load. That's the advice. And there you have it, yes. Dr. Dimitri, thank you so much for jumping on the phone. Thank you for your sex positivity and your realism. This was a really helpful conversation. I think a lot of my listeners are going to benefit from it.
9: Thanks for having me. It was a great pleasure. Thank you. What's
10: up, Dan? So (laughs) I've been like dating this cutie. We've been core-core dating, so we have been going on... Bike rides and hanging out in parks and doing like socially distanced stuff. And I've had a crush on him for quite some time. And he lives real close to me, and I really would like to make out with his face. And I'm just trying to weigh out the options and see (laughs) how much um, harm that would be doing me, like versus how small the risk is. So he has a small contained circle of people that he sees like his immediate household and then a couple close friends. But he goes to the protest which proud of him also possibly putting him at more risk going there. So anyways, I'm just wondering what I should do like homeboy gets tested for COVID, and apparently he doesn't have it, but, and I don't know, like maybe he goes to another protest, and then I don't feel comfortable after he's exposed himself again. So I'm just wondering, like, when can we make out with people again? It's honestly like less about having sex. I just like really am trying to smooch, so um, is there hope, Dan?
2: All right, you just heard Dr. Dimitri from NYC Health talking about risk and talking about Harm reduction strategies for people who want to hook up with people that they do not live with. Props to you, caller, for going on these socially distanced dates, going for bike rides, going for walks, hopefully wearing your masks. Now what? You want to, you say you just want to make out with this guy, that small, low risk activity, kissing. Well, that was a low risk activity when we were worried about, as, and we are still worried about, many of us need to still be worried about HIV. The HIV virus cannot be transmitted through kissing. So kissing was safe, but this virus is different. Droplets in the air, people exhaling, that is how this virus spreads. So kissing is more dangerous. You know, eating this guy's face is more dangerous, as Dr. Dimitri just pointed out, than eating his ass would be. So if you want to hook up as safely as possible with this guy, who's going to protests and, you know, increasingly it looks like If people are outdoors, even if they are within six feet, but if they're outdoors and wearing masks, as most of the people at the Black Lives Matter protests have been doing, and thank God, that they're less likely to transmit or uh, acquire this virus, much less likely to get infected outdoors. So if he's been going to protests, not as much of a concern as if he were instead going to a packed mega church or a Trump rally, that would be a bigger issue. And of course, going to the Trump rally would disqualify him uh, in a different and huge way before you even thought about kissing him. So the, the 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 demos he's been going to, not necessarily a big problem. If he tests and he's negative, you have more assurance. It's not going to be 100% safe, though, if you kiss him. Not going to be 100% safe if you rim him instead, but as Dr. Dimitri just said, it will be safer. Don't do it immediately after a bike ride.
11: Hi, Dan. I'm a cis straight woman in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'm a casual, savage listener, and I'm calling for advice regarding my 25-year-old cis male gay roommate. Last night, we were hanging out, having a great old time, when the guy he's been on three dates with texted him if he could if they could talk about having sex soon. My roommate threw his phone onto the couch, turned bright red, and got super flustered. He told me about the text, and after a long pause, finally said he should just get it over with. I want to help, but I feel so out of my element. When I started in the dating world, I was told to wait for someone special, and the guys tended to respect those boundaries. My roommate hasn't had those experiences. Basically, every guy he's gone out with wants to fuck him right now and loses interest when he doesn't. He frequently jokes about giving head and wanting guys to choke him out and sit on his face, and he seems very comfortable with his sexuality. When he finally talks about losing his virginity, he freezes up. I've asked him if he's held off because maybe he's not interested in being a bottom, and he assures me he definitely is. He thinks being a 25-year-old virgin means he's defective. That even saying those words makes me want to tear up. From my point of view, he's only been out for four years, and hasn't been anyone worth taking the leap for. I'm not talking about marriage or even a committed relationship, but someone who shows genuine interest in you as a person, this three dates guy has no issue with taking his virginity. This is so aggressive to me, but I'm not in the community and I don't understand the pressure. My roommate thought it was considerate of this guy to politely ask. Previously, my roommate has sent me articles describing the mental toll caused by the toxic masculinity in the gay community. It all sounds pretty terrible. There's so much testosterone flying around, and it seems like innocent guys looking for real connections are forced to settle and just get it over with due to the constant bombardment. Is this how the long, winding road of sexual intercourse should start? Doesn't my roommate deserve romance and courtship and intimacy? Am I totally romanticizing? i wrong here. Please tell me I'm missing something.
2: There's toxic masculinity in the gay community. There's toxic masculinity in the straight community. We're never going to fix it. I mean, we're never going to eradicate it entirely. The trick is if toxic masculinity isn't your thing and not all masculinity is toxic and not all toxicity is masculine. But if that turns you off or freaks you out or you're not into it, you don't have to participate you don't have to fuck those guys a lot of the people who stand around complaining about toxic masculinity in the gay community are drawn to it are drawn to a kind of masculine expression and then they feel conflicted about it because it often comes bundled with garbage bad behavior you know a- aggression and the trick if you're attracted to that kind of masculinity is to learn to tell the difference between people who are masculine and toxic and people who are masculine and non-toxic. And unfortunately, one of the ways you learn how to do that is through trial and error, is through getting out there, having experiences, meeting people, hooking up. And that's how you test and refine your bullshit detectors and your toxicity detectors, is through sometimes hard-earned life experience. It seems to me that your roommate is afraid afraid of being sexual, a, a, afraid of putting himself out there. You say that he wants intimacy and romance and a connection. Well, he's not the only one. There are other guys out there who want that. If, if that's what he wants, if that what he requires from someone that he's going to be intimate with for the first time in his life, then he needs to put that out there. Cause there are other guys like your roommate out there looking for your roommate but if your roommate doesn't you know wave his hand over his head on grinder or wherever else he's meeting guys to go out on dates with and say i am a virgin and i am only interested in a long-term romantic connection and that has to be established first before we're intimate then he's not giving guys who want what he wants and wants who he is a chance to, to 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 find him he's not identifying himself to the guys who are the right guys for him That seems to me, though, like not a great strategy for sexual and romantic success as a a gay man. It is more common in gay culture for guys to introduce themselves with their dicks. I'm not telling your roommate he has to to run out there and have an anonymous hookup. I'm telling your roommate that there is an expectation that, you know, at least by three or four dates in, there will have been some sexual intimacy. That doesn't necessarily mean that he's got to be ready to have his ass fucked. On date number four, some sexual intimacy, some testing of whether there's chemistry in a, a sexual neurotic connection that can just mean making out that can just mean masturbating together. Now, one of the advantages I've always said that we have in Gayland, uh, the four magic words, the question that begins every male, male, same sex encounter the first time these two guys get together. It's almost invariable if it wasn't established through like hanky codes back in the day or through just blurting everything out in DMs on Grinder, If it wasn't established what you're interested in at the outset, you know, when you're first going to hook up, one of you has to look at the other. And often both people will say this is the exact same time. What are you into? And at that moment, you can rule anything in and rule anything out. At that moment, you can say, I'm not into anal or I'm not into anal right away. At that moment, you can say, I'm... I would just like to make out and maybe we could masturbate together, get to know each other better and take this thing slowly and by steps. And most gay men are fine with that. And if your roommate tells somebody, I'm not into this, 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 but I might be up for this. And the other person says, well, I have to have anal or I'm not going to bother. Well, the guy's identified himself as someone that your roommate doesn't want to fuck with. Shouldn't waste his time on is the wrong guy for him. Cause that guy's going to pressure him to do more than he's comfortable doing at least initially. So, I feel like if, you know, your roommate had calls and I could have called him back that his fear may be related to it's all or nothing that he has to do everything that he saw in hump with another guy or he has to, you know, keep his clothes on and remain a virgin. And that's not true that there are degrees of intimacy and and, and sexual expression that carry with it degrees of uh, uh, physical and emotional risk and complication. And he can keep it simple and keep it small at the outset. And there are guys out there who will be fine with that. Fine with waiting three or four dates and then want to at least hook up in the make out sense of hookup. And your roommate is free to end the encounter at any moment when he begins to feel uncomfortable, free to get up and go free to pull his pants up. If indeed he has even pulled his pants down I have seen ads on Grindr and other places where people have said, I just only, only interested in making out and they get play. People are interested in just making out. I think I would tell your roommate if he was my roommate, do that. Find a guy who just wants to roll around and make out, see how that feels and then see if it goes somewhere. And I just want to quickly here at the end, reject this, the the implicit assertion here that gay men just aren't interested in romance or connection gay men are some gay men define romance and connection differently it's possible to have a romantic connected encounter with someone in one night that you're never going to see again over a weekend or for a lifetime but a lot of the guys out there who are hooking up who are having anonymous or random sex are open to and looking for a long-term romantic connection and many gay men find those long-term romantic connections through hookups, through what had initially been just a a one-off, but there was a spark there. There was a connection there, and then they hooked up again, and then they hooked up again. In my experience, including my own personal experience, the best long-term relationships were one-night stands that stood. You had a one-night stand, and then you had a one-night stand again, and then you had a one-night stand again, and before you knew you were living together. It can work that way. So your roommate shouldn't think that hooking up, having a, one-time encounter with somebody he feels good about means he's not interested in romance, or that isn't possibly a romance because you never know. I've met gay married couples with kids who met in bathhouses, who met in dungeons, who met on grinder because they wanted to get a blowjob on a business trip, and they clicked. Anything is possible.
12: Hi, Dan. I'm calling with a question regarding my ex-stepdaughter. Me and my ex-husband got married super quickly, and it wasn't long after that that I realized he was a terrible person who had been lying to me. Fast forward, we have an eight-month-old daughter. I don't really see him or hear from him much regarding her, which is a good thing because I don't want him to be a part of her life. He has a trans 20-year-old daughter from a previous relationship. Me and her got along pretty well, and I could tell that I was one of the few allies she had because she came from a very small town. One of the things I found out my ex was lying to me about was the acceptance of her. Around me, he would use the correct pronouns, but I came to find out later that around other people, he would tell people his son was going through a phase and use him. It was absolutely disgusting and one of many lies that came to light once we were married. Around the time of my birth, she relayed some information to him that I was just not comfortable with, so I had to delete her off all my social media. I think about her quite often because my daughter is her half-sister. I'm not really sure how to reach out to her. Do I let her know that her father is a terrible person? I don't want to make her feel bad about relaying the information to her dad because she probably just didn't know, but I also would like to set up some boundaries." I want to let her know that I'm still here for her if she needs to talk to anyone, and that being a trans youth is definitely difficult. I would like to let her know that if she wants to be a part of her half-sister's life, that she is more than welcome to. What are your thoughts?
2: It would help to know what your stepdaughter did that was such a violation of your privacy or your safety that you had to delete her from all your social media and block her. Because if she's as toxic as her father is, then you're not going to want to bring her back into your life. You're not going to want to involve her in her niece's life or your own safety, your own security. If the violation was relatively minor, you say she shared some information that she didn't shouldn't have shared or didn't need to share or that made you feel uncomfortable and safe when she shared If it's something that you can forgive and get past, if she understands what she did wrong, if she's apologized to you, if it was out of character as opposed to, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back, just another example of her poor judgment or her being inconsiderate or her being malicious, well, then you could reach out to her and say, your father and I are divorced, but I want you to know that I – still have fond feelings for you and I love and support you. And if you need an adult to talk to who supports you in your gender identity, I'm here. And at some point it would be great if you could meet your niece and it would be great if my daughter could meet her aunt, but you have to make a judgment call about this girl's, this woman, she's 20 years old, this woman's judgment and whether she's a good and decent person that you would want to have in your life and that you would want to have, in your daughter's life. And if whatever it is that she did that prompted you to block her was huge, maybe it's disqualifying. Maybe she fucked herself out of any relationship with you or relationship with your daughter. But if what she did was a teenage thing, a frontal lobe not fully developed thing, something she did on an impulse and that she regrets and that she's apologized for, and it was out of character. Maybe you can bring her back in. Maybe it would be good for her to hear from you. And if she's living in a small town and doesn't get a lot of support from family or friends uh, about her gender identity, it would be a good and decent and kind thing for you to reach out to her. Maybe just keep it to letters or emails at the start, get a feel for where she's at now, and you can work toward uh, a meeting. You can work toward visits and more involvement uh, in your life and your daughter's life in time.
1: Hey Dan, I am a single gay male in my mid 30s in the Midwest and I have some much needed relationship advice. I was dating a guy now for about 10 months and basically what it boils down to is that I just wasn't feeling a connection anymore and there were just more things that i didn't like about him than i did and then the concept of an open relationship came up to which i had talked to him twice early on about me not wanting to be in a closed relationship and he had brought it up in a conversation to which I apparently didn't realize he didn't want to be in an open relationship. So then that was like the final straw. I was like, okay, I'm done. Um, we, you know, we met and kind of just, I basically just said, you want different things than I want. And that's fine. We just can't be together. Um, and so I left and his first reaction was to basically like tell me to F off and like, I'm blocking you and everything. And then, Since then, he's been, I'm sorry, I miss you, and and I've just been like, I want space, I need space, and he's not giving me space, he sent me roses, he sent me a card, he just doesn't understand, he wants to be friends, and I keep telling him, I need space, and I, I don't just want to block him and I you know, I don't want to hurt his feelings and tell him like, well, these are all the personality traits about you that I didn't like, but I don't know what else to do other than just saying I, I need space and he isn't listening to me. So I don't know what else I can do, Dan. I need some
2: advice. Stop telling him you need space and take it. That means blocking him. You have told him to back the fuck off and he's sending you roses and contacting you all the time and sending you cards. He's not doing what you asked him to do. You determined earlier in the relationship when you were dating that you weren't sexually compatible. You didn't want the same things. That should have been the end of it. And you can, you know, pivot to a friendship after a relationship, but it usually means after some time apart. And it requires that the person that you've dumped or you, if you're the dumped person, it requires you both really to demonstrate respect For boundaries, that would make the friendship possible after the relationship. If you can respect each other and appreciate each other. And one of the ways you show respect for someone early on after the breakup is if they've asked you to back the fuck off, if they've told you that they need space, you give them that space. Stop waiting for him to give you what he's clearly not going to give you and just take it. Block the motherfucker and tell him why you're blocking him. Ask him not to contact you. Put it in writing so that if he does continue to contact you, that's something you can go get a fucking restraining order about if he proves himself to be dangerous or threatening. But tell him it's over and you are not interested now, particularly in being his friend. And if that hurts his feelings, well, that's on him. You may have been able to salvage a friendship. You may have been able to be his friend down the road if you've been able to respect your boundaries. And you're very simple and common request when a relationship ends for space and time away from each other before you circle back and try to have a friendship so fuck this guy he's making you feel uncomfortable and you're sitting there worried about hurting his feelings fuck his feelings tell him to leave you alone put it in writing block the motherfucker already All right, before we get to your response calls, let's read your tweets. First up, Uncle Jody, craft beer drinker, tweeted to all of his followers that he was listening to the Savage Lovecast. Thank you, Uncle Joe, for the shout out. All right, Ari Evangelista tweets, I tried to Google cut queen humiliation pig, but was not successful. But now I know all the cuts you can get out of a single hog laughing through the tears emoji. We took a call recently from a woman who described herself as a cuck queen, not a cut queen a cuck queen a cuckold of course is a man who gets off on the humiliation of watching his wife or girlfriend get fucked by another man a man who gets off on watching his husband or boyfriend get fucked by another man also a cuckold but a woman who likes to watch her partner get with someone else is known as a cuck queen i think it's a little like actor actress or waiter waitress it's not a term that needs to be gendered so i support going with cuckold cuck for short to mean just anyone who gets off on being humiliated watching their partner Get fucked by someone else. Becca Wagner tweets when at fake Dan Savage answers your question on the Savage Lovecast and says exactly what you were hoping to hear. Three clap, clap, clap emojis. All right. Not everyone can say the same. Some callers don't get the answers they were hoping for. But it is often the case that when people who call into shows like mine or send letters to advice columnists like me, they already know what they need to do and just want someone else to tell them to do it, and I'm always happy to be that guy. And finally, UK Refugee tweets, after a pretty crappy day, so good to hit play on Savage Lovecast, and feel the theme, tune, soothe, excite, and wrap me in a familiar feeling of rationality and honesty. Thanks, at Fake Dan Savage. You're welcome, at UK Refugee. All right, if you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag, SavageLovecast. And now your response calls.
13: Hi, Dan. I'm calling in response to the caller that is fucking this guy who has a gorgeous dick, but is sort of racist and sexist. And I noticed that you mentioned that he's from Middle East. So I'm gathering he's an immigrant. And I want to say as an immigrant myself that the cultural barrier is a lot bigger than many people understand. So we come to this country and our understanding of the culture and our language, like our choice of words is vastly shaped by Hollywood and the pop culture that America exports. And it's very sexist. It's very racist. And by just coming here and, you know, getting a job, maybe even going to school doesn't miraculously make you uh, a cultured. So I would just encourage you, if you see a good person behind a big dick, give him a chance, and but have a conversation, assuming that he's not coming from the same space as you are culturally. He may come from a country that brainwashes us into many bad beliefs so maybe turn him into good podcasts and if you have that bandwidth spend a little bit more time acculturating this new new american whatever
0: hey dan this
4: is a response call to the man who asked about straight dudes being default doms Your response was solid. However, I feel it's really important to include that there are so many different ways to dom a guy. There's face sitting, there's penetrating their mouths with your hands. There's a lot of sexy, fluid, um, hot, dominant stuff that doesn't just involve penetrating their anal orifice, which is, you know, great. And yet there are so many ways to do it. And I just want to make sure everyone is conscious of that fluid field of possibilities.
10: Hi, Dan. This is in response to your conversation with Dr. Rowan on episode 713 about um, grooming. I feel like a pretty reasonable compromise that I don't think either of you mentioned would be trimming rather than shaving or waxing. Uh, I feel like that would mitigate some of the risks of shaving or waxing that Dr. Rowan cited as reasons why someone would prefer not to groom at all, while also helping the person who has a preference towards someone who's groomed kind of get closer to what they want. I know personally, I don't really have strong aesthetic preferences when it comes to grooming, but some trimming definitely can help streamline things a bit, especially in terms of oral sex.
2: And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064 better yet use the voice memo app on your phone to record your question it's better quality for broadcast and email it to us at voicemail at savage You have two more chances to catch Hump's Greatest Hits Volume 1 online this Thursday, July 2nd, and next Friday, July 10th. You'll see a collection of some of my favorite dirty movies from 2005 to 2018. And now is the perfect time to get busy making your own film for Hump. Win cash prizes. Go to humpfilmfest.com to get tickets to Hump's Greatest Hits Volume 1 and to find out more about making and submitting a film to Hump. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Representative Brandon Woodard on Twitter at Woodard, that's W O O D A R D, 4, numeral 4, Kansas. And follow Dr. Dimitri Dasgalakis on Twitter at Dr. D R Dimitri, that's D E M E T R. The Savage Love Cast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech, Sebi, at Riskute and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week for an installment of the Savage Love Cast. Thanks for downloading.